1: Hello, hello, good people, and thanks for carving out a little time in your day to take in the 102nd episode of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that drops every other Thursday. If you don't already know all the things that happen in Secretariat, you're about to find out. I'm the show off who actually runs faster the longer the race goes, Ryan Ellis. And here's the perfect specimen who mind melds with horses and prefers to come from behind, Christy Gregorio.
0: <laughs> I can't argue the perfect specimen element of it, Ryan. Would have been here sooner tonight, except on the way over here, I realized I've got this gaping abscess in my mouth, and it's really been sapping my energy. So it took me a little bit longer to get my wind than it normally would have. He's got
1: a bum tooth.
0: (laughs) Can I say right off the top that my favorite moment in this movie, bar none, is the line from John Malkovich when Diane Lane asks him just after he gets hired for the training gig, she asks him what he thinks about Secretariat or Big Red at that point. Mm -hmm. And to paraphrase slightly, and I'm sure I'm getting this a little bit wrong, he basically says, well, he's carrying too much weight, he eats all the time, the only reason he doesn't eat more is because he sleeps most of the day, and he hates being told what to do. And I'm like, that's me in a nutshell. This is incredible. (laughs) Also our dog, Sam. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. After I watched the movie, I went up to Allison and I said, okay. I'm going to read you a line from the movie, tell me who it describes. And I just read that line to her and she goes, that's you! (laughs) Yes! This movie is speaking directly to me. Very personal. I feel Secretariat's pain. It's personal filmmaking. It is, yeah. I should clarify
1: that me being able to run faster the longer a race goes is so untrue. (laughs) My stamina was never my strong suit when it came to running, even when I was able to do it better than I probably can now.
0: So you're more the Usain Bolt than you are if I had... Any knowledge about marathon runner names, I would have said it right now. I don't, so... Roger Bannister. There it is. Like a hundred years ago. White guy. Closest I got, sure.
1: (laughs) Okay, before we get into Secretariat any further than we are now, I have got something I haven't had in a long time. Runs, hits, and errors for Angels in the Outfield. Ooh. I said the working title was Pirates in the Outfield, but it wasn't. It was Angels and the Pirates.
0: That makes more sense, actually. Angels and Pirates fits a little bit better. Pirates in the outfield, I remember, well, that just describes the team on the field. Because we had a
1: whole segment about that. I wanted to take it out, and I thought, I can't now. This is a whole segment, and have to address it next week, which I'm doing now, or two weeks later. Also, the movie did end up losing money for MGM, about 170000 bucks, which back in 51 was quite a bit of money. So I said it was not really a loser, but I guess it was when it came to the box office. And because we talked about how streaky and often terrible the Pittsburgh Pirates have been throughout their history... I dug up some interesting factoids on baseball reference. The Pirates have been better than I thought because they've actually won more games than they've lost in their history. Is that right? And they've won nine pennants and five world championships. Five? Five, yeah. Mostly early on. They won the two in the 70s, and they won a lot about 100, well, more than 100 years ago. They haven't even been to the playoffs in, well, not that long, but they haven't been to the World Series since they won it in 79. The Cubs' all-time win-loss record is a little better than Pittsburgh's, But they've been in the playoffs about the same number of times, and they've won two fewer world championships. A couple way long ago, and of course the one in 2016. Cleveland, the sad sack subject of Major League... The Cleveland Guardians. Guardians now, yes. The Cleveland Redacteds. Has a better all-time win-loss record than either the Pirates or Cubs, surprisingly. But have fewer pennants and fewer World Series titles than those two teams. The Los Angeles-slash-Anaheim-slash-California Angels who are portrayed in the 1994 Angels and the Outfield remake, are below 500 all time. And they've won only that one World Series in 2002. And as for our hometown Blue Jays, they've lost more games than they've won all time, but they did win those two World Series championships in 92 and 93. So the Pirates, sad sack isn't entirely true. They're right in line with a lot of other teams.
0: If you had asked me the question, do they have a positive win-loss record over the history of the franchise? I would have guessed no, that they lost more games than they won. So that's interesting. There's certain franchises, and to a certain extent, something like our hometown Maple Leafs in the NHL are one of these franchises where their success is front-loaded. They might have been a dominant team for 20 years in the 20s and 30s, and then that skews the overall record. It doesn't surprise me that the Jays have a losing record because they've had some really bad stretches post-World Series wins and before 2015-ish few good teams in there, too, but a lot of really bad ones.
1: Also, when they first were inaugurated as a franchise, they were bad.
0: Yeah, for a few years. They got reasonably good reasonably quickly for an expansion team. But, again, that's a history, especially since we only won two World Championships versus the Pirates 5. We've been in existence since 77, so it's at 44-ish, 45-ish years. Mm -hmm. And the Pirates, my guess, I don't know when they were inaugurated, but I would guess it's 120 years ago, something like that. Like early 1900s, probably. So... That's why I like your comparison to the Cubs the most because they probably about the same time came into existence. And of course they had that century long drought or something. Close to it. Yeah. Until the 2016 win. This is the kind of stuff that stats nerds like us really geek out Mm -hmm. about, but maybe most people have already fallen asleep. (laughs) In which case, if you're listening to this late at night, you're welcome. And we're off. (sighs) Well, Horse Run Fast was
1: released by Disney on October 8th, 2010. It wasn't a mega blockbuster, but it wasn't a raging failure either. So another example of a Disney-made movie, Invincible, Miracle, Glory Road, those ones were more failures than this was. This did okay. But what is it with Disney? They can market better than anybody when they want to. This movie has got good numbers. The Rotten Tomatoes critics, Mm -hmm. they like the movie. 64% say good. 6.1 out of 10 was the average. 157 reviews. A very fair sample. It doesn't really crack a fresh tomato by much, but it does. 76% of audiences. And at the box office, it was 58th that year, 2010. The Karate Kid remake, the Jaden Smith movie, was 11th. That was a blockbuster, but it is a sports movie. The Fighter, which we did cover, was 35th. And The Tooth Fairy, the rock... Is it hockey he plays in there? I yeah. think so. It was 59th. But there you go. The numbers on Secretariat are pretty respectable, and yet the movie didn't
0: really break out that much. Do you have the specific number? Like, how much did they put into it? Let us see. I only ask because we have had this discussion about da, Disney a couple of times.
1: The budget was $35 million and it made sixty worldwide. So it didn't double the budget. That's usually the number that you think of as yeah. or at least a moderate success. If it doubles the budget worldwide... It didn't even do that. Prints and advertising and promotion exactly, is why yeah. a movie goes in the red if they don't really
0: truly break out. That's why I say it's not really a failure, but not really a true breakout either. I'm starting to feel like Disney just dedicates the majority of their advertising resources towards their big hits and tentpole franchise releases, and then they fill in the release gaps otherwise with these moderate budgets. $35 million in 2010 is not much of anything, mm-hmm. even for this style of movie. And they just figure enough people will go see it that it will not lose us a lot of money. Maybe it makes a little, maybe it loses a little, but it keeps our name out there, right? It Mm. keeps the releases flowing.
1: Prestige film. Prestige film. To some degree, anyway.
0: Yeah. Actually, I was a little bit surprised at how poor the critics' reception was to this when you read it out. I would have thought, both based on my reaction to it, but based on the type of movie, the performances in it, some of the actors in it, that the critics would have eaten this up a little bit more than Mm. that number would have indicated. So that's surprising to me. So it just feels like the studio doesn't... I don't want to say they don't care about it, but they just made the decision that these movies are never going to be big money makers for them. So they're just going to let them do their thing. If it gets them awards, great. Otherwise, it's just content, especially now that they've got streaming services. I'm sure this kind of attitude will just continue even more because if it fails in the theater or it's not a big success in the theater, you know what? It's a movie that can go on Disney Plus. It'll help us boost our content.
1: And a wash for them. I think yeah. that's probably true. One of the issues is Seabiscuit beat it to the punch. That came out in 2003. We covered that. The only other horse racing movie we've ever covered was Sea Biscuit, And that was a pretty good success, especially in home video. It really did well in home video, but it did well in the theater, too. All kinds of Oscar nominations. This didn't get anything like that. And yet the movies are
0: very similar. It's so weird that you say that. I thought, just at a glance anyway, and can't really remember my exact thoughts on Sea Biscuit, only in general terms, but I think I like this more than Seabiscuit. Really? And okay. I thought the performances, at least some of the performances in it, were every bit as good as any performance we saw in Seabiscuit, I don't really see a big difference between the two. But if I had to lean one way, it's probably towards Secretariat. So the fact that it didn't get anywhere close to the same awards nod or critical reception is kind of gobsmacking me a little bit.
1: Okay. Well, before we go much further here, you just took a sip of your tea. No booze for you tonight. I do have some, though. It is bourbon because we do have the Kentucky Derby involved in this film. So Thematic. It may not be a mint julep, but it is out of a
0: green frosted glass and I'm wearing a green <laughs> shirt and you have a green mug for your tea. That's right. I'm just going to crack this while we're talking boo so I don't interrupt later. This is my double fisting with my decaffeinated green tea is my sugar-free Dr. Zevia Dr. Pepper knockoff soda. So there you go. I'm going hard tonight, Ryan. Two fisting.
1: It is a weeknight still. You've got a couple more
0: days to work. You cited the alternate title for this. What was it? Horse Go Fast? I something? made that up. Oh, damn it. I, mean, I like that a lot. You've given us... Horse altern- Run Fast. Horse <laughs> Run Fast. Yeah, and you've given us alternate titles from other countries before that always make me giggle. Mm-hmm. I was hoping that was maybe the Chinese market release translation of...
1: Whenever it's been one of those kinds of deals, I actually reference the country. If I don't do that, then it's something I've made up. So we saw this in Disney+. Plus. I've seen it before. The first time I saw it many years ago. I don't think that's not in the theater. It must have been on video. I looked at my old notes and I gave it two and a half stars at a four, which means I didn't hate it, didn't love it. And I do think it suffers from the fact that this kind of movie, not just horse-raising, but this kind of story has been told over and over and over, dot, 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 over in the history of filmmaking. That's the biggest problem against this film. If it was made, so? this kind of underdog story, of course, it's not really that much of an underdog. That's the funny thing about *Secretary* compared to Seabiscuit. But the way the yeah. story is told and the way that... He's going to win the Triple Crown, but will he? I don't know that much about Secretariat, but I think I knew going in that he was that much of a famous horse. It's almost like saying, here's the Barry Bonds story. Here's the Babe Ruth story. Well, we know they were unbelievably awesome, so the story can only really go one way. I don't really follow horse racing and neither do you, and we are doing this in advance of the Kentucky Derby, which is pretty soon. But this is maybe the most famous horse of all time. This, Man of War, and Seabiscuit are probably the three most famous horses that have ever existed. So it's got that going against it, too, is that you're covering Babe Ruth rather than doing the lesser-known player. One of the reasons that something like Bull Durham works, that's a minor league made-up player, granted, but it's because he never made it, but he's also not some superstar. If you cover the huge star, those kinds of movies don't usually work as well as the unknown. So there's nothing wrong with this movie at all, but I think it really suffers from the fact that we've got decades of, and if this is an underdog, that's debatable, but decades of underdog sports movie stories. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with anything here, except we've seen it before. And we have a power saw, a table saw, something going on right now outside. So if that's part of the audio, then welcome to Suburban Living. Yeah. Well,
0: urban living, I guess. You're right. There's nothing terribly creative about the screenplay, I suppose. The drama of these movies suffers from familiarity, and I think that we touched on that when we talked about Ali, because again, it's a personality that is so well known. Even if you're not a boxing fan, that that movie, in my mind anyway, relied solely on whether or not Will Smith could carry the charisma and energy of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and I think we hitting agree. people in the face. Yeah, funnily enough, I think we agreed that... More than once. (laughs) In the movie itself, his charisma, weirdly enough, did not live up to Muhammad Ali, and then he really brought that boxing reality (laughs) to life at the Oscars this year. But this movie is similar, right? Because we all know a little bit, if you follow sport at all, you know who Secretary it is, and you probably know that he wins the Triple Crown, so you're right, the drama suffers. I think maybe one of the reasons I'm forgiving of it is because, A, in my mind, it was a little bit different than some of those underdog stories we've seen before, because he's not an underdog he's an overdog right he's the big overwhelming favorite i know they try to build up sham in this as a competitor and he was but knowing the history it doesn't really work all that well but i just like the performances and i like the fact that it didn't try to turn secretariat into an underdog for the sake of the narrative because that would have felt even more fake it would have felt very weird and i also appreciated that the movie seemed to have some respect for its audience in a way that we don't often see in sport movies. Like, it didn't try to shoehorn in some sort of stupid, corny romance. It didn't belabor the home life of Penny. You got enough of a glimpse of her dual life without them beating you over the face with relationship woes between her and her husband. Mm-hmm. You gotta like a John Malkovich performance where he puts on some sort of weird accent at some point, right? <laughs> like we've heard him do Russian and rounders, singing around, singing around. We heard him do horse fresh. has alligator blood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Secretary, it's always starting slow. It's like chick, chick, chick. Mm-hmm. You lure me in, right? Mm-hmm. Secretary is just playing with his opponents, just waiting to catch up. To they
1: them. make it sound like the horse knows what's going on. They talked about at one point the horse is posing. This is early in the movie, too, when it wins, I think, the first race. Is he posing, somebody says. And then he's all worked up, meaning secretariat, before one of the big stakes races. It's
0: almost like Secretariat knows, okay, let's go, man. I'm all worked up. If I was a football player, I'd be bashing the walls with my forearms. Basically what you do to get pumped up for every softball game, banging your head through the walls of your bedroom. I was going to say locker room, but in this case, your bedroom. Used to. I'm getting old. I don't think I'd do that anymore. Oh, okay. So no more head bashing. Some gentle kicks, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Tappa, tapa, tapa.
1: But the movie tries to give some personality to the horse with that stuff. And also with, and I said it in the intro, about the weird scene... Although, I don't think it didn't work. It was just still weird, though. Diane Lane playing Penny Chenery Tweedy. And it says in the IMDb here, Penny Chenery. Even though her actual name is Penny Tweedy. She marries Jack Tweedy. But anyway, she mind melds with the horse. That's what I got the feeling. It's almost like, no, won't do it. No, he's all worked up. you no, no, not going to work. Hang on, guys. You're the trainers. You know horses better than I ever will. But let me just step in here for a 2nd We're friends. You want to work with me, don't you? I'm Diane Lane. I'm very pretty. Even my old lady wig will always be pretty. If I ASMR you and not even say anything, actually, because I don't say a word, we just make eye contact. That's enough, right? That was a strange scene, but I didn't hate it either. It It should have been terrible because it seemed odd that she does seem to just will the horse into being okay.
0: Yeah, in the moment I didn't really think too much of it because there's always a few scenes in any given movie where I'm like, that was a little weird, but I'll roll with it. But you're right, it is strange. And the thought of the real-life Penny Chenery doing exactly that and whispering to the horse, I'm Diane Lane, is kind of funny to me, so I kind of like that. I don't know, I think what the movie was trying to imply, I find this fun actually because you say this to me all the time, so I'm flipping the script, Ryan. (laughs) I always complain... Or very often I complain that a movie is not giving us enough information about a thing or enough screen time to feel a way that the movie is trying to make us feel. To sell it. You often tell me there's a shorthand to this that I think the filmmaker would argue is being used here. And I think what the movie is trying to do in a very concise, shorthandy way is compress a year, probably, yeah, of raising the full mm-hmm. and developing that connection into this one scene where she just has built over that year of raising the full. This connection with the horse, where she is able to calm him when nobody else can, and that's the shorthand the filmmakers try to use there.
1: I'm actually picturing right now something I didn't picture when I watched the movie: the scene in Crocodile Dundee 2 when they go back to Australia, <laughs>
0: or maybe it's the first one. Actually, it might be the
1: first one You're when, pole, when there's some Dundee. giant water buffalo or something in the middle of the road right. in Australia. I think that's the, the first dirt one. road, and he goes oh, yeah. with his fingers, yeah. and he just calms the thing down. It lays down. Okay, it's Mick Dundee. I'm good. Same idea, I guess. He mind melded, she mind (laughs) melded.
0: The only way that scene would have been better, and I mean that scene in Secretariat, is if Diane Lane did the same waggling of the two (laughs) fingers in front of the horse, (laughs) and it worked. I learned that one from Mick Dundee. (laughs) Even
1: though the movie came many years after this is set. (laughs) This is set in the late 60s, so it starts in Denver in 69. That's where the Tweedy family lives. We also hear Penny narrating the Book of Job, which does come back later on at the end. Which would seem odd, maybe, except it's America. They love their Bible stuff. But it also isn't odd when you consider the director of this film. Randall Wallace, who wrote Braveheart, which has religious themes, obviously. Mm. For Mel Gibson, we know he's religious. And he wrote and directed We Were Soldiers, one of the most underrated war films of all time. I love that movie. I've seen that it's many times. Movie. Which doesn't really have religion so much in it. But that is what Randall Wallace is. I didn't read that until many years later, that he is somebody who may be even more hardcore, I guess, Catholic, than Mel Gibson is. And that's probably why you've got the book of Job and this movie being read a few different times when it seems like it's almost apropos of nothing. But that's maybe also to give the notion that they've all had to overcome so much when they haven't really that much. The Chenery family does have to, as we can use a reference to, oh, brother, where art thou? Buy back the family farm. Or even Field of Dreams. When I was preparing my notes earlier this afternoon, I pictured the whole thing about that. Daddy, we don't have to sell the farm. Because there's a point in this movie when she's talking with Dylan Baker, who plays her brother, And her husband is part of this conversation, too. we got to sell the farm. we got to make some money off this. We're in debt or we're going to be broke. And you can't have these horses. And you live in a different state, too, Penny. So what are you doing here? And it's almost like Field of Dreams and some of the other films, too. So, again, that's part of the problem with this film is it came after all of these classics that did some of the same things before. But this is based on reality. So I guess that's true because Penny really did syndicate the breeding rights to Secretariat. They brought in $6 million. That paid off all their debts, I guess. And then, of course, she also was guaranteeing to Phipps, played by James Cromwell, the Secretariat was going to win the Triple Crown, which is a big gamble anyway, because a lot of horses have won the first two legs, but it's the Belmont Stakes is the last leg that horses often fail on.
0: One of the things I wish the movie had been a little bit more clear on, and this is through Penny's husband, you managed to raise the $6 million, like you said, through studding fees. Mm-hmm. At first, they tried to do that. Nobody was going to pay the price that they wanted, and they needed to make $6 million because apparently that was the inheritance tax on the farm. So what she did in order to get the money is to make performance guarantees, or I guess the agreements are null and void. So the first race that Secretariat runs after signing all those agreements... is not one of
1: the three big races. It's not, no, but
0: that's the race where he has the abscess in his mouth. They make a, a point of showing him wheezing on the track. He's not eating, all that kind of stuff. And so he loses, and then Cromwell comes up to Penny in the stands and says one loss can be forgiven, two is an aberration, Mm -hmm. right? I guess maybe we're just meant to assume that he's correct, and if Secretariat loses any other race, then the agreement's are going to be null and void. I would just wonder if Secretariat wins every other race up until the final race of the Triple Crown and then loses that race but presumably still gets named Horse of the Year. Would they still say, oh, well, too bad. (laughs) Yeah, no, you didn't meet your performance obligation. Horse of the Year won two of the three Triple Crown Rangers.
1: Two straight years, in fact.
0: I was a little unclear about that particular element of it, and they probably left it vague. Could be phony drama. For phony drama, yeah. But I think that plays into the fact that you were talking about earlier, trying to fabricate some drama because most people already have a sense, at least, that Secretariat was hugely successful, so the drama has to come from somewhere. And the other element of that drama, that phony drama anyway, I think was kind of what you were talking about earlier, the family farm, right? Because the $6 million they need to raise is about halfway through the movie when Penny and her brother inherit the farm because their father is not Copas Mente, he's not there and their mother has just died. Then he has a stroke and dies himself. Ultimately, yeah. So they're effectively in charge of the farm very early on and Penny makes a lot of cuts. The farm at least breaks even. Although the husband does say, I thought you were going to sell the farm. I didn't think it was just the goal to make it break even. But anyway, they've resolved the immediate financial threat. But then the brother comes forward later in the movie and says, we need $6 million because the farm is worth $30 million and you can sell Secretariat for $7 million today. Mm-hmm. Later on, she gets an offer for eight from James Cromwell before she turns it down. The movie wants this to be drama. It has to be something that Penny overcomes. Your interpretation of that as a viewer is going to be dependent on your personality if I were in Penny's shoes, and maybe this is a flaw in my character and why I would probably never be the person to aspire to greatness. Because
1: Money in hand, right?
0: If I can have my family's farm valued at $30 million in 1972, and I can get the $7 million from whomever it is, so I can pay the inheritance tax I have to pay on that property, and also have another million dollars in cash that I can split with my brother, in 1972, so what's that, four or five times now, like $100 million maybe? I might love this horse, but I can't say no to that. I can always raise more horses. And try this
1: with some other horse, yeah. Yeah,
0: I struggled with that element of it because it felt like silver spoon troubles to a certain extent. And what's weird to me... Oh,
1: it's... this movie is very much white people problems. Yeah.
0: Part of... Seabiscuit isn't. Seabiscuit's about the depression. Yes. Red especially.
1: We talked about it in that podcast. One of the best scene in the whole movie is when he goes to Jeff Bridges and says, can I have, I think it's $10. Bridges' hands are do not even think about it. Here's 20 And this isn't a loan. This is, I can help you out. You're becoming my son. He doesn't say any of these things. The scene suggests that this is what Bridges is saying, which is, here, take this money. You need it. I've got plenty of it. Yeah. That movie is about underdogs, though. And they literally say it plenty in that film. One of the worst parts about that film. But this isn't about that. No. Even if they defaulted on the loans, I don't think that the chenaries, meaning her brother and herself, are going to be hurting for money. Her husband, Jack, back in Denver, is a lawyer. She's doing fine. They're doing fine as a family. I don't think that her brother is going to be suffering from this. No. They have a way out of this. It's just that this could take care of this right now. And it sounds like Dylan Baker's character is like us. It's money in the hand versus taking the chance. The movie implies that maybe that mind melt scene is supposed to tell everything that she feels way too much about this horse and has way too much faith. And he can lift us all up out of all this... But it's a horse. You're not actually friends with this horse. You can say it cares about you, but doesn't really care about you that much. And even with the bonding of all the characters, she and Malkovich have that really nice scene towards the end of the party where they acknowledge that you're a great horse owner, you're a great horse trainer. That's right. And they have a lot of great scenes together, but there's not that father-son thing that Bridges and Maguire have in Seabiscuit. So there's almost nothing at stake, and it does feel like a lot of things are invented to be at stake in this film. Mm-hmm. And that's one of them, which is this could be paid off... Okay, you want to stick with Secretary, but even if he had failed because of the abscess or he wasn't the horse they thought he was, whatever the reason was, and I guess it's the Kentucky Derby's first in 73, then it's the Preakness, then it's the Belmont. Let's say he didn't win the Kentucky Derby, and then Pip said, I'm out, and they default. But these aren't poor people. They're not going to starve to death, I don't think, even if that had happened.
0: I think the... Inheritance tax burden was true. The offers of the millions of dollars were true. The rejection by Penny was true to life. And the Secretariat's achievements are pretty true, too. Yeah, so fair play movie, but we're in agreement that it doesn't really build the drama that the movie's trying to. We're with the guys more than her. Yeah. She's a starry eyed dreamer being unrealistic. Exactly. And even if they all fail, all of those studying fees fall through... What's the worst case that they end up having to sell Secretariat at less money than they wanted to? Maybe they have to sell part of the farm. Again, a huge farm, very valuable. And all of that sucks. But like you said, the brother's an economics professor at Harvard. The Tweedy family's doing very well in Colorado. It's not great. They don't even live where this farm is. They don't really care about the farm in that way. Yeah, that is one thing I wish the movie had done a little bit more of, because it only does it very briefly at the beginning of the movie when we're introduced to Penny's father through the flashback of him... I guess buying the first foals for this new farm when she's right. young. I think that's the movie shorthand for trying to imply that she grew up in this environment and she has a connection to it. She left. Yeah, they both left. And neither one of them has been connected to this farm directly for what seems to be a very long time. And fair play that she came back and she took it on. and She's trying to preserve her father's legacy. But as a viewer trying to understand her connection to the farm, it's a little bit of a struggle sometimes. Weirdly for me... And I think probably similarly for you, because we both have pets, and I feel like if somebody said to me, I'll give you $7 million, well, maybe that's an exaggeration.
1: Sam, you're sold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I was going to say, I would struggle to sell any of my pets for any amount of money. But... I'm too tired right now. I don't care. <laughs> sleep underneath you guys. You might be winning me over to Seabiscuit's side as we're talking this through. But <laughs> as two pet owners here, neither one of us was really able to immediately connect to Diane Lane's desire to just hang on to Seabiscuit at all costs, regardless of its monetary value and race capability from an owner animal connection perspective, you would think that we would be primed to really root for that connection. Because like I said, we both care about our pets deeply. They're priceless to us. They're priceless to us. And I don't think either one of us felt that connection between Diane Lane and Seabiscuit, not Seabiscuit, Penny and Secretariat. <laughs> nice
1: flaw, well, because in that movie, yes, you do feel that with multiple people, especially with Toby Maguire in Seabiscuit. That's right. Yeah. But even Bridges and to some degree Banks in that film. You know the one that has the best connection with the horse in this movie, and it's based on a real character, I know Eddie was. Sweat, played Great by, name. I guess that's Nelson, it's spelled Nelsan, but Nelson Ellis, who by the way is in... True Blood. He's Lafayette in True Blood. Oh, he's also in The Express, a football film which maybe we'll cover one of these days. His character is pretty good in this movie. I think that Nelson Ellis, Nelson, is it Nelson? We'll say Nelson. I don't know. Let's say Nelson. That he does a pretty good job playing this character. And I think it's supposed to be a subtle but well-played thing where they've known him for a long time. Mm -hmm. The family has, she has. It's not like when she goes back, when the parents are in the troubles they are with the mother dying and the father not being well, then the stroke, then he dies and she's taken over the family farm. It's not like she doesn't know him. She already did before, and she respects him. It doesn't matter that he's black. She seems to have respected him. We're glossing over maybe these people, meaning the white people, would have felt like, oh, yeah, this guy. But the movie makes it seem like he's part of the family. But during the races, where is he? Never in the box with them. I'm actually glad that the last race at the end won. No, he's never in the box with all them. In the Belmont Stakes at the end, and that's when the Triple Crown is won, I would have thought maybe a lot of movies would have done this, where we got to bring... Eddie into the box with us, the family, meaning all of her kids, her husband. Obviously, we've always got Malkovich in there with Diane Lane. And then behind them is Phipps, Cromwell. So you've got all these people that are investing in this horse, but the black guy is always off somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that's closest to this horse in a more literal way because he spends the most time with this horse. He always apparently, in reality, Eddie Sweat did, called this horse Big Red. Never called this horse Secretariat.
0: Big Red is a lame name for the horse, I think. I like Secretariat a lot more. I didn't notice that. For some reason, I thought I saw him in one of the ending races. Well, it's not a movie about race, but I'm guessing that that's what
1: Wallace was doing very subtly. I think you're I right. I hope so, because he shows him by himself talking about, oh, you can do it. We see Malkovich saying, let it go. What's the trainer's name again? The jockey's name. Oh, the jo- Ronnie. Ronnie Turcotte, of course. Otto Thorwath, wath I guess Thorwarth, <laughs> who I guess is an actual jockey, not really an actor, who well, has a lot of screen time in this, though. Lots of times, Ronnie, now, open up, that kind of thing. We see Malkovich saying that, but we also see Eddie saying similar but different things, but he's off by himself. I don't know if he's hundreds of feet away from them, but he's not with them. And I'm glad in a lot of ways that this movie didn't have the thing of, yeah, but we actually care about you, so come I think they do that in, is it Seabiscuit? There's a movie like that where there's, let's bring the black housekeeper who cares about whatever it was. You know what it was? It was Invictus. Yes. White family. It's Matt Damon's family.
0: It's going for heartwarming, but feels... Which might have been real,
1: another real-life story, but it does feel more honest, which is, yeah, but you can't be part of this thing. Maybe because even if all of the Diane Lane, well, Penny Chenery group would have wanted to be there, he wouldn't be allowed to go in there. I think that's very possible.
0: And one of the things the movie explicitly does address is the boys' club chauvinistic nature of horse racing. My guess is probably still today, but at least in the 70s, that happens when she tries to visit somebody at the Gentlemen's club, and she's told she's not supposed to be there. And they're always referencing horsemen. Lots of good horsemen know this about racing. Lots of good horsemen know this about racing. So explicitly in this movie, sex is an issue in horse racing and discrimination on that basis. I would roll race into that as well. A slightly bigoted, well, not even slightly, very explicitly bigoted attitude in horse racing in this era The first time we are introduced to the farm itself, you get a 5-10 second shot of the drive leading up to the farm. And there's an overseer, foreman, overseer kind of character, yelling at a black man to get back to work. We don't pay you to lay around, get your ass back to work kind of stuff. And then it just moves on. There's no rhyme or reason to that scene. It doesn't really need to be there for anything. But that combined with everything else we see in this movie just leads me to believe that, like you said, this is the screenwriter's or director's subtle way of just nodding towards there was a segregation of class based on race and sex in this environment in the 70s anyway. So Penny is breaking down those barriers. In addition to just overcoming these obstacles, dramatically made up, as they may or may not be, but Mm. she's also overcoming the obstacles that are put in her way just based on the way that this sport treats people that aren't white men.
1: She's got to deal with the sexism thing. She can't also fix the racism thing. And maybe the character or the real person was racist too. Liked Eddie, thought he was good, but he's one of the good ones. Nothing like that's ever said in this movie, but maybe that's what's supposed to be implied. But I just wanted to make a note of that because that is definitely suggested. And I think it's mm-hmm. got to be intentional. Mike Rich wrote this. He also wrote The Rookie, meaning the Dennis Quaid real-life story again, also on Disney+. We will cover that later this year, probably around the All-Star break. We'll do a baseball movie by then. Makes sense. So he wrote that as well, and he based on William Knack's so N-A-C-K, Nack's book from 1975, which Who, was not long after the reality of this movie.
0: Right. Who is a character in this movie? We see Nack as a reporter, a beat reporter. That's the, what's his name, Eddie Connolly or whatever? E from Entourage plays that character. Oh, you're
1: right, Kevin Connolly. Kevin Connolly, I didn't yeah. pick up on that. You're right, yeah, there he goes, Bill Nack, it says on the IMDb credits here.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that I do know about this guy, Bill Nack, and it's funny because it reminded me of you, to be honest... The way he apparently got this gig to report on horse racing, because he loves the sport, he apparently got to know Penny and Secretariat very early on before their huge success, and that's why he ultimately wrote the book. He was advocating for himself, and he wasn't Mm -hmm. getting the position he wanted. So he stood up on the desk in the middle of a bullpen of a newspaper or something, and he reeled off in order every winner of the Preakness or the Kentucky Derby or something from its inception to its current date in order and stuff like that. It so impressed the editor. They said, how the hell did you do that? You got the job. You start tomorrow. Go report on horse racing. And I'm listening to that story. Yeah, Ryan could do that with the Oscars. Or Can a
1: guy get a job doing that? <laughs> There's got to be more than just me that can do that, but not so much the recent stuff. It's but... not
0: an easy thing to do. That's why I've always been very impressed with your ability to do that <laughs> with facts and stats and stuff like that. It's still, yeah. in the, still in there somewhere. It's not a big role in this movie, this Knack character, but we do see him pop up a few times. I think notably... Leading up to the beginning of the third season of racing, or the year three of Secretariats, which I guess would have technically been his second year of racing, right, when he's three years old. Right. He's asking some questions, and the other reporter asks a stupid question about the horse. No horse can do that. And then the horse starts peeing on his foot. He's like, what the? No way. The horse
1: has personality.
0: Yeah, again, that goes to your horse's personality. The horse is (laughs) self-aware. Yeah.
1: More than most animals would be. By the way, I think you just said it properly. This is on the goof section of the IMDb. Good point. We are Canadians, so we respect the French-Canadian accent and their heritage and everything as much as we can. We don't know a ton about it ourselves, but he isn't Lucian. His name should not be pronounced that way. It would be Lucian. How did I say it? You said did, it, Lucian. Did I, oh, did I? So it's more of a loose rather than a Luche. Yes. Not a big deal, but he's French-Canadian, and it's also portrayed that Ronnie Turcotte is. Malkovich speaks French here and there, not a lot. But when the scene happens, when Ronnie's riding off with the horse, maybe midway through, a little past the midway point, one of the big races probably in the movie, Malkovich says something in French, French people would have understood what he said, because Malkovich is playing a French guy.
0: Like you said, not a lot of moments. And I guess it's for the best. I assume that... Malkovich is enough of a character actor pro I know when I say character actor I know he's more than that in Hollywood but he likes to take on some of these quirky roles But he's really just... a star he's a character actor you got that right the first yeah? time okay you uh, can't call him a star he's a character actor fair enough But I assume he would have done his homework into the real man that he's portraying to see whether or not he spoke, when he was speaking English, whether or not he spoke with a French accent.
1: Because Malkovich doesn't.
0: I don't think he would have been scared to try based on what we saw in movies like (laughs) Rounders. Oh yeah, here we go. Some wild French-accented Malkovich, baby. And we never got it. There are a few scenes when he does speak French. And the first one of those, after Secretariat's first race, when he gets waxed and he's reading the riot act to the jockey... Not Ronnie, a previous jockey, yeah. I thought it was the same guy. No, they fire him. They fire him and brought somebody else in? Okay. Although, apparently,
1: Ronnie, in reality, had been the jockey from before. There may have been a jockey that got fired long ago, but this is one of those condensing of events, type uh, think. The I movie's see. about two hours, so it's not that long a film, really. But I guess, in reality, Ronnie had been riding. And also... Penny had been riding horses before secretary, Not riding, but she'd been owning and whatever you even call yes. it, grooming horses before Secretariat came along. So she and Ronnie were experienced working together and winning races together
0: with a previous horse or horses before this
1: champion came along.
0: But that particular scene I thought was fun because in my broken understanding of French, as I recall, I said something to the effect of a horse's ass could have done it or something like that. Zutalo! Yeah. <laughs> and what I liked about it is he's ranting, he's grabbing his stuff. The guy's only response is... Say that in English. And (laughs) then the scene ends. Just a man venting in his native tongue.
1: So let's talk about the real athlete in this movie. And that is the horse. And there's some reality here. And they get it pretty accurate from what I saw online. So Big Red did live from 1970 to 1989. He was only 16, three and one. He made $1.3 million back in 70s dollars. That's quite a bit of money in a fairly short period of time. Won two horse of the years, horses of the year, whatever you want to call it, in those two straight years, 72 and 73. He won the first Triple Crown in 25 years that year in 73, and according to the Wikipedia entry, he still holds the records in all three races, Kentucky Derby, Preakness Stakes, Belmont Stakes, and has 600 offspring since. So obviously we're talking about grandchildren of the horses that he sired. Some other facts, by the way, about real people. Penny and Jack did divorce in 1974, which makes sense. The movie does have a nice scene with them at one of the balls. I guess maybe it's the Belmont Stakes ball, whatever you call it. I talked earlier about Malkovich and Diane Lane having a nice scene of, I like you, I like you too. No suggestion at all of romance, because I think for one thing, the real guy was quite a bit older than her. Although you see the real person and she looks older than Diane Lane does. But anyway, the couple didn't last. And this movie does paint that the marriage isn't going that well because she's not being the housewife that he expected in the late 60s and early 70s. She remarried. I think she divorced him too, but she did remarry somebody else after that. And then Ronnie, they say this in the end credits, I believe, broke his spine in 1978. So he raced for quite a while after secretariat. But then he did break his spine later that decade. So the horse was remarkably successful. But in a nutshell, because he was forced to retire at the end of this year, to sire these horses, which I'm sure was awesome for him, but they paint this horse as being this champion that wants to beat you, that wants to race, that wants to just make you look like a fool. I'm gonna start way back here and then just go past all of you over and over and over. So, in a nutshell, Secretariat, record-setting sprinter, retires to have sex for the rest of his life. Somewhere, Usain Bolt's like, "Damn it! Why do not I get that? I do that sooner?" <laughs> but when they make this horse to be such a competitive racer, how did he feel about that?
0: You're at the top of your game, but stop. What is he, Jim Brown? Although <laughs> that was Jim Brown's choice, maybe he just took that competitiveness into the breeding. Arena, <laughs> in which case, I feel for those mares. I guess is this mares? Yeah, mares. You read his record as sixteen three and one. So presumably 16 wins, three runner-ups, and one third place. Is that that?
1: No, it can't be a tie, can it? So maybe that was the one third place. This
0: yeah. is our respective ignorance of horse racing. Well, he, coming, no, through. he
1: was fourth in that race before, in the start of the movie, when they fired the other jockey. He finished fourth. That's true. So I'm not sure what that meant. I just assumed it was a tie, but you can have ties. Maybe you can, actually, in horse racing. It could be
0: that at the photo finish, it's a tie. Maybe that's oh, what maybe. that means. Okay, It could be. One of the things I liked about this movie, and was probably true of Seabiscuit, I just have no memory of it, but they very explicitly make a point of it in this movie, is just how caked in mud jockeys get. Ronnie's bathed in it. Yeah. The first race, we see the jockey come off the track with the horse, and he's just caked in mud, and you don't really get why. And then later on, after Seabiscuit wins his first race, Malkovich comments to the jockey, "Terry wins the first race. You said Seabiscuit. Did I say sea biscuit? Sea biscuit. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, after Secretariat wins the race, Malkovich comments to the jockey, you look like you just finished last. And the jockey says, for a lot of the race I was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's clever, right? Because it introduces presumably a relatively accurate portrayal of what the jockeys and the horses, frankly. Sometimes you would see the things that go on the horse's head almost like goggles over the eyes. And I never really understood when I saw that, what that's all about. But now that I've seen this movie, you see the jockeys caked in mud head to toe, and the only clean part of their skin is where their goggles are down over their eyes.
1: Horses must be the same.
0: Horses must be the same. So I thought that was a really clever way of introducing that concept. You really understand the kind of punishment that both horse and rider go through I don't know if you've ever watched BoJack Horseman. Yeah. Not a champion racer. Not a champion racer. <laughs> Did some studying. Some siren. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Did not have the competitive spirit whatsoever. <laughs> it was very lazy. Did eat too much. Too many drugs. But one of the recurring gags, character actress Margo Martindale. And she's in this. And she's in this horse racing movie. She was in Days of Thunder. We
1: covered that. She's a million-dollar baby. She is Maggie's mother, so Hilary Swank's mother. And she's in three other sports films beyond this. So that must be six sports movies, at least, that she's been in
0: one way or another. Ooh, if we do all those, she could surpass Costner on our Mount Sportmore or whatever, <laughs> or, or like the podium. Of the stars, he's got to be number one. Woody Harrelson's somewhere in there, too. But, but he's yeah. the most we've covered. I you think mean, Costner is. Five?
1: Costner? Four for sure. It might be five. Well, Fred Thompson, who's in this movie for a little while as bull. He's just bull. Yeah. Fred Dalton Thompson who is a controversial senator as well, but he was a pretty good actor, especially back in the early '90s. I loved him in Die Hard too, but he's also in movies we've covered, Days of Thunder, and he's also in Necessary Roughness. We covered that I think last year, yeah. I and then that. I talked about James Cromwell as a role in this as Phipps. I love that he was in The Babe, so the Babe Ruth movie, which we got to cover one of these days, I guess, maybe this year because it'll be 30 years old this year. And also he was in Babe, so he was in The Babe and Babe. And he's also in The Longest Yard. He's the warden in the remake of The Longest Yard. Which we will have to do also at some one of these point. Days I saw it on the theater. had a lot of fun with that, actually. I got free tickets. <laughs> one of the reasons why I had a lot of fun with it, I guess. But a lot of these people, unlike the last movie we covered, Angels in the Outfield 1951, have done a lot of other sports films. Diane Lane was in Hardball, which we covered last year. Yes. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and you laughed at this so much. Six Pack, the Kenny Rogers car racing movie. I don't know who she plays. She might be one of the kids because she was so young in 1982. And she's in Six Pack also but here's a question for one you one day we'll do this we see it in this movie she's getting a little older at this point now stunning physical specimen a good actress does she have one of the terrible agents in hollywood because why is this woman's career just good okay middling she's got every tool you could want as an actress i would think and certainly has the looks even now playing superman's mother in the dceu
0: i don't know because i agree with you i can't think of anything i've ever seen diane lane in where i thought she was anything less than good if not great but her resume is not that great. Yeah, you got to pin it on the agent, maybe, but who the hell knows what goes into these casting processes sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> it looks surprisingly good for somebody that was put in that wild 1970s helmet hair mm-hmm. of a wig. Which is pretty accurate for the real person. I looked online at the real Penny. The hair, at least, is accurate. No doubt, but you wonder what women in particular would have gone through in the 60s and 70s just to get the hair into that kind of... Yeah. Hairspray galore. Like the movie
1: Hairspray that starts out just pouring it on their head so it won't move. I guess that's it. Just a helmet. Dylan Walsh does play her husband, Jack. He's actually in Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman, which is a pretty good film, Nobody's Fool from the 90s. But mostly did TV, including a lot of episodes of Nip Tuck, which I've never seen. It's a good show. And then Scott Glenn, who plays her dad. Such a good actor, so many good films, but he's in Personal Best a movie that is now 40 years old this year. The, what is it, a racing, as in running movie? I think it's a track and field movie, actually. And then Dylan Baker plays some pretty interesting real people in his career. He's Hoover in Selma, so the FBI director, and he's Robert McNamara in 13 Days. Now, the score factor. We just talked about Diane Lane being beautiful, as she always was. She still is now. But this is a Disney film, and her relationship with her husband is almost non-existent in the movie, which is maybe true in reality. So... Diane Lane aside, score
0: factor, nope. Yeah, exactly, It's zero. But that is one of the things I appreciate about this movie. Like I said off the top, they make no effort to weirdly sexualize it somehow. There's a lot of movies made now that would have either tried to really build up the drama with her husband or otherwise sexy up the relationship she had with Lucien just to squeeze that romantic subplot in there somehow. So I like that this movie didn't do that. And you touched on the fact earlier that Penny does get divorced from her husband in a few years' time, 1974 or something. They ultimately get divorced. And I think this movie was very clever in how it communicated the breaking down of that relationship. Because she's not present. She's not present. She makes certain comments along the way her husband, rather, says to her... I don't want to spend my money on a horse farm or on a failing horse or something like that. And she says, got it loud and clear. Not a penny of your money will go towards this. That could be construed as just another fight. But these are two people that are amicable. And I think this is kind of realistic. Not all relationships end in some sort of dramatic explosion. Sometimes Mm. it's just... You grow apart. You grow apart. And in this case, she's regularly in Virginia at this horse farm and he's in Colorado with the family. And then over the course of the movie, you see that evolve. You see her literally being at a distance from her daughters right she's calling in to where they're having plays and things like that. she's crying
1: because she missed it
0: i just thought it was sensitively done because it doesn't paint either of them to be villains they both have very legitimate and understandable perspectives on what's going on they love their kids they love their kids both like you said the movie makes a point of showing that diane lane's character penny is distant from what her daughters are doing what her husband's doing But she feels that out of necessity, rightly or wrongly. Her character feels that's a necessity. She's not running
1: away from this. She just has another job to do.
0: Yeah, and she's feeling the effects of that. The daughters seem to understand it. They're not holding it against her. Nobody's spewing vitriol around. Doesn't help drama. In a movie where we've already said the drama is sometimes manufactured mostly unsuccessfully. So the lack of that doesn't help that at all. But it just felt more real. There's a lot of comparables you could make to this movie in terms of underdog stories, whether or not you consider Secretariat an underdog, and a lot of tropes that this movie does follow. That's not one of them. In the movies we've talked about thus far, anyway, the way they handle that interpersonal stuff with Penny and her family was, I thought, a little bit unique and refreshing change of pace. Anyway. Yeah,
1: sure. Look at my notes here. I forgot to mention also that in the Belmont Stakes, which is the last race that Secretariat wins, which is against the odds of a lot of other horses that have won the first two legs of the Triple Crown, but then failed to win the third one. So I looked online. I found a clip of the actual race from 73 online, and it is so accurate. Secretariat, for the first time in the movie, is portrayed at least, gets the early lead, and then is neck and neck with Sham for a while, but then goes on to win by 31 lengths. In the YouTube clip, the guy says something like 24, but then says to himself, it could be more. And then when it's over and the horse is just prancing around and they show other graphics and things, he does say 31 lengths. That is unbelievable. It took just two minutes and 24 seconds, which was a record by several seconds. And of course, that day won the Triple Crown for the horse. And then I wonder, does he like the early retirement? Because it seems like he wants to keep on racing, but this is the deal that his mind-melding lady had made for him. <laughs> Go off and have some fun there, boy, because you're going to give an awful lot of lady horses some babies.
0: <laughs> well, maybe that was the unspoken agreement during that mind-melding scene. You got to race for one more year. Yeah. Then you get to go Give off. Give me all and, you got for one more year, big guy, and then I'll see you set up right.
1: And apparently Secretary did breed or co-breed, however you want to look at it, a lot of champion horses. You look on Wikipedia for the information about that. So, I think the depiction's pretty good. We talked about Seabiscuit already. It's about as well done as that was. Maybe not quite as good as that, but it was beaten to the punch seven years earlier by that horse racing movie. And even National Velvet, but long ago. I talked about that movie, I think, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Clarence Brown directed that one, and we did Angel's Nail Field, which he directed also. But the biggest problem is the movie does fill a little stock and paint by numbers. If this movie had been made 20, 30 years earlier, you might have had a blockbuster in your hands rather than a moderate success. So for all of those reasons, I'll give it a 6 out of 10 because I didn't dislike it. I would not refuse to watch it again, but I've seen it twice. That's probably enough.
0: The more movies we cover, the less I'm looking for unique because I think... You're not going to find it. You're not going <laughs> to find it, yeah. But I take your point, and honestly, over the course of our chat here, you've actually talked me down. I came into this discussion thinking, you know what? I might even give this an eight. For all of its lack of drama, and I have to concede that 100%, if you go into this knowing anything about the horse, there's virtually no drama to be had. But for all of that, I just found myself really enjoying the performances, but you've highlighted some key elements of this that I'm like, yeah, you know. you am down further- to a seven now? I'm down to a seven, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I might walk back my earlier statement that it's better than Seabiscuit. For all of that, I'm still shocked that there were no nods made in Diane Lane's direction in particular. As much as I liked Malkovich, I really did like Nelson Ellis's performance. Eddie mm-hmm. sweat, yeah. But the problem is, aside from Diane Lane, there just isn't a ton of screen time for any of those particular people. Margot Martindale, Dylan Walsh. Mm. None of them get enough screen time where you could point to them and say, like, your performance was very good. It warrants award consideration. But Diane Lane carries this movie, and mm-hmm. I thought she carried it very well. Good movie. Would watch again.
1: Okay. Fair enough. I would give it a six, by the way. So I said two and a half stars out of four way back when. Six out of ten,
0: about the same kind of
1: number. Yeah, you're about on par. Yeah. Solid film.
0: A man of consistency. Yes. Actually, that's not true. You've talked about your initial interpretations of movies when you saw them. Happened to me lots of times. Brought your scores up notably sometimes. Brought them down notably sometimes. Mm -hmm. When we first started, or when I pitched this to you about something we might just do...
1: It's Uh, about seeing how
0: you feel about something now for all these years. Yeah, and I think that was before I even knew that you kept records about movies you had seen from way back when, because I didn't do that, so I'm just trying to remember what my interpretations are. So it's really interesting sometimes when we do watch those movies that you had those notes about from Mm. way back when, and we can map how has your life experience or the experience of watching movies in the intervening years changed or colored your perception of it. It's unintentionally exactly what I thought we could do on this podcast when we first started talking about it. So that's kind of neat to me sometimes.
1: You know, the best encapsulation of what you just said has got to be in 12 Monkeys, which Bev and I covered for the Top and Under Project a couple of years ago. Yeah. Bruce Willis says about Hitchcock classics that they're watching the marathon. I think it's about Vertigo specifically, which is the movie doesn't change. We change.
0: Yeah, I think that's especially true of movies that are a little bit more intelligent. And I would argue that this falls closer to the intelligent end of the spectrum and less it towards does. like the stupid spectacle end, which is probably ready to rumble or something. Right?
1: Oh, this is smarter, I think, generally than Seabiscuit even because I watched the end scene of Seabiscuit where Tobey Maguire wins that last race and I criticized it in that podcast. Something about how Well, in the end, we fixed each other. And I can't do the high-pitched voice. In the end, we fixed each other. It wasn't the horse that we fixed. We fixed each other. Right. We've watched this for two hours and 15 minutes. We know this. Why is this in the movie? This movie doesn't go to that length. It does have the Book of Job stuff, probably because of Randall Wallace. So enjoy the Kentucky Derby on May the 7th. We won't be watching because we never do. (laughs) We'll tip a mint julep, my green glass that had bourbon in it, my frost cup, is gone a beverage, but it did have bourbon in it earlier. So we'll tip some to you racing fans, all the same on May the 7th. In two weeks, we'll venture back into the world of MMA as we take a look at Halle Berry's directorial debut, Bruised. This will be the first time either of us has even seen this movie. It's on Netflix. She directed it.
0: What was the last MMA one we did? Warrior?
1: Not the last one, probably, but one of. I guess we can sort of enter the dragon to be MMA. Okay. We jammed that in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because we needed more. Lionheart years content. ago was also jammed into MMA. Yeah. We need MMA content. <laughs> content. So we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at, scoring at Movies. You can tweet birds. You can tweet bandsaws or handsaws. You can tweet sirens. sirens. God. That's what the neighborhood tonight. And you can find us wherever you get podcasts. We're on all the podcast places. You can also email us. ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. So take her easy, Secretariat, and I hope you enjoyed all that siring as much as you enjoyed all that running.